Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. Hebrews eleven twenty-eight. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask you to teach us from this one scripture the many truths of your word. And we pray, Lord, that we'll understand the gospel of Christ better and be able to please you and to glorify you in every way. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, here again, we have another incident where Moses is mentioned in this uh, pattern of faith of the various uh, patriarchs and matriarchs of the Old Testament. And in this, he reminds us of a ritual, one of the most important rituals or festivals of the Old Testament known as the Passover. And here, Moses is the one who is keeping this Passover. He is the one who is instituting it. He is the one explaining it to the people. And he is the one who, after explaining it to the people, they all together conduct this Passover on the day they left Egypt and for subsequent generations, they observe this Passover. Now, he did this in faith, he says, in chapter 11, verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover. Now, we have already seen that this faith is a gift of God. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But having this faith granted by God, what does he do with that faith? God then commands for a new festival, something that had not been done before, to be instituted. He explains it all to Moses in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. He explains it all to Moses, and then Moses teaches the people to do this. Now, we understand that this would require faith. He's hearing the word of God. He has not done this before. The people have not done this before. So this would be a strange, a novel, unusual thing for them to start to practice. And because Moses is the leader and the prophet of the people at this point, this is why the apostle draws our attention to Moses, because he's going to set the example for the rest of the people. He is the man of faith. He is the man of God. The rest of the people, we will find out later, that the rest of the people, they are rebellious and they're stubborn. The vast majority of them did not believe. They conducted this festival as they were commanded, but they were not really true believers. But Moses was a true believer, and that's why he is set here as a model of faith. Just imagine yourself. If God were to tell you to do something unusual, something that you have never done before, something strange in your own (coughs) estimation, would you do it? Would you do it as he did here? He kept the Passover. That is, he took the lamb. He killed the lamb. Then the lamb was cooked and consumed as it was supposed to be. He took some hyssop, a branch of hyssop. He dipped it in the blood of the lamb. And then he would use that to sprinkle on the doorposts and on the lintel of the door. He would make sure that the house had no leaven for seven days. No leaven in the house for seven days. He would make sure to bake bread without leaven in it, without any yeast in it. This is what he would have to do. He would have to have bitter herbs that he would eat. These are the various things that they had to do, but they never did this before. 
They never did it in this way before. Yet Moses, being a man of faith, whatever the command of God was to him, he did it. Even when it sounded strange to him and new to him, he did it. This is what faith should be in us too. Whenever we know, and we do know from Genesis to Revelation, that everything in the Word of God is true. Everything in the Word of God is reliable. Everything in the Word of God is eternal. It's beneficial for us in our salvation. We already know that, right? We profess to know that. We already know that. And if we already know that, then whatever we come across in the Bible that teaches us, commands us to obey it, we must obey it. It requires faith to obey it in the way that God has told us. Even if it may may be strange to us, unusual to us, we must do it. To have the kind of faith that Moses has. After all, is that not what he is teaching us in Hebrews 11? He's not teaching us to put Moses on a pedestal in such a way that we lose track of who God is or we lose track of who we are. No, Moses is an example of the grace of God at work in his life. And just as God was at work in his life, he'll be at work in our life if we have that same kind of faith. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15, 4. Now these things happen to them as examples for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. This is why these things are in Scripture, that we might imitate the kind of faith that is displayed here, shown here, explained here. That's why we must understand the word and then have the same kind of faith. Now also notice, it said he kept the Passover. We saw in our reading of Exodus 12 and 13 that it was first called the Passover. It was called the Lord's Passover because the Lord would pass through the land of Egypt. When he passed through the land of Egypt, he would look to see where the blood was sprinkled, where the sacrifice was offered. And if the blood was sprinkled in the proper way, in the proper places, then there would not be any death in that household. But the Egyptians, they didn't want to do this. It was completely new to them and foreign to them. To them, the God of Israel was a strange God. The God of Moses was a strange God, not their God. So they wanted nothing to do with it. Instead of being curious and inquisitive and saying, listen, I've already seen all of these nine plagues and I don't want another plague to come. You've been announcing that this 10th plague is going to come and now it's going to be a plague of the death of our firstborn, firstborn of humans and firstborn of cattle. I don't want that to happen. There weren't very many of the Egyptians who were curious to say, hey, I see that God is telling you these things. Let me repent of my sins. Let me believe in your God and let me follow you. Yes, there were a few who did that, but not very many of the Egyptians. Yet this is why it's called the Passover, so that God would pass over all of those who refused to obey him, so that he would pass over, um, I'm sorry, pass over all of those who did obey him and then uh, mete out judgment on those who refused to obey him. This is what God does. Those who are faithful to him, he passes over and does not judge us. But those who will not do what God's will is, God will not pass over them. He will punish them. This is what is meant in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because in Christ, God passes over us because the blood of Christ has been shed for us. And we believe in that blood. We act according to our faith in that blood of Christ. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for our sins because we believe in him. So God's condemnation will not come on us, but it will come on those who don't believe, those who refuse it, those who reject it, those who say, that's silly, that's strange, that's stupid, I won't do it. No, they walk away and they say, no, nothing's going to happen or I'll be fine, even if it does happen. They'll say, even if it does happen, I'll still be okay. They take pride in their own wisdom, their own power, and their own deeds. This is what they do. But God taught the people of Israel through Moses to keep the Passover, to escape the judgment of God. Now, a couple of things that we need to note about this Passover further is in reference to the ritual of the Passover. Notice it says, and the sprinkling of the blood. This is just one aspect. It is one of the most important aspects, but it's one aspect of the ritual that they were to conduct. That is, the lamb was to be slaughtered in the proper way, and then the lamb was to be cooked in the proper way, roasted in the proper way, and whatever was left over, it was to be consumed. Everything was to be done according to the prescription. But one of the most important parts was that the blood of the lamb would serve as a symbol of faith, that if they acted in accordance with what Moses was commanded by God to observe, that is, to sprinkle it on the doorpost and on the lintel, then there would be no judgment that would fall on them. This was the most important part of the ritual, the sprinkling of the blood, and this is why the apostle mentions it. Now, did the people, or did Moses first, did Moses understand what he was doing? When Moses sprinkled the blood on the doorposts, when he did that, did he understand what he was doing? Did he put his confidence in the blood of that lamb, or was he looking forward, future in time, to the blood of Christ? Which one was it? Was it merely the blood of the lamb, or was he looking forward to the blood of Christ? Well, we have presented before that he was looking forward to the blood of Christ. It says in chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 26, that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ, the infamy of Christ, the slander of Christ, the mockery of Christ, however you want to consider this word reproach, that which was uh, a humiliation to Christ. What was that? That was not his miracles. That was not his resurrection. It has to be his lifelong suffering culminating in his death. That was his reproach. That was how he was slandered. That's how he was mocked, his death. And in fact, Hebrews 13, 13, 12, um, 11 to 13 actually does mention this. Notice, 13.11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing 
his reproach. When Jesus suffered outside the gate, that means he was crucified on the cross outside the gate. That was his reproach. And just as he suffered like that, we ought to also go outside and suffer like that, bearing his reproach, bearing his cross. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Just as Jesus went to the cross, we also ought to be willing to go to the cross. It was a reproach to Christ, and it will be a reproach to us. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. This is what the cross is, and this is what Moses believed, this is what Moses taught whenever he conducted these various rituals. He was teaching the people that they should have faith in the blood of Christ because it is impossible for the blood of a mere animal, an animal, not a human, but a, a mere animal, how could that blood spare them from the wrath of God? It's not the blood of the animal itself that spares them from the wrath of God. It is the blood of Christ that spares them from the wrath of God. How can we know this? How do we know this? Well, we can know it for sure in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, where he explains. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, that is, when Christ comes into the world, Christ says, that is, Christ, the Son of God, is speaking to the Father, and he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now what is the argument of the apostle here in reference to sacrifices, even the sacrifice of the Passover, which was offered year by year? What's his argument? He says that the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Verse 4, it is impossible for that to be the case. How could we imagine that God would be pleased to avert his wrath against us by the death 
of a mere animal, a bull or a goat. It is a lesser creature. How could a lesser creature's death pay for our sins? He says, no, that's not the way of salvation. It is the blood of Christ only that is the way. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was already announced. He gives one proof by quoting from our passage from Psalm 40. Remember, we read earlier Psalm 40, and in verses 6 to 8 of that psalm, there the prophet, he writes these words, which are words of Christ that Christ would announce to the Father when he enters the world. As a prophet, David wrote these words that Christ would announce and pronounce to the Father when he entered into the world to accomplish our redemption. That's what it says in verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. And what does Christ say to the Father that we should understand to be the case, known by David already, 1000 B.C.? And I argue that Moses also knew when he instituted the Passover. What did they know? They knew that God did not desire and require sacrifices. Well, wait a minute. He did require and desire sacrifices, which it says in verse 8, Hebrews 10, verse 8, which are offered according to the law. He desired and required them in obedience to the law, but he did not desire and require them as the means of salvation. The only means of salvation is the body of Christ, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all for our sins, once for all time, for our sins. It's only the offering of the body of Jesus Christ that can pay the penalty for our sins. This is what he tells us in verse 10. Hebrews 10, 10. By this will we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now this should teach us to put our confidence in Christ. Just as Moses put his confidence in Christ, he trusted the death of Christ for his forgiveness of his sins. And this is what he taught the people. It should firstly teach us Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the only way of salvation. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Acts 4.12 and 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6. This is what the scripture teaches. It is only through Christ. It's not going to be found in other religions. It's not going to be found in Hinduism because they don't believe this. It's not going to be found in Buddhism, because they don't believe this. It's not going to be found in Islam, because they don't believe in this. It's not going to be found even in Judaism. Though they have some things right, it's not even found there. It's only going to be found in the true scriptural faith, the gospel of Christ. That, that's the only place. Another lesson we can learn from this about the sacrifice of Christ and their faith in Christ shows that when religions such as the, the Catholic religion, when it teaches that each time the Mass is offered and prayers are offered for, for the Mass, to consecrate the Mass, that is, the, the communion elements, when that prayer is offered, it becomes, the sac it becomes the body and blood of Christ. 
And each time, the body and blood of Christ is offered again. It's sacrificed again. Instead of believing that it is once for all time. Once for all time. Or in verse 12, for sins for all time. One sacrifice for all time. Instead of believing that, they have invented a tradition of men in order to subvert and distract us from the offering of the body of Christ once for all for our sins. Once for all time for our sins. This is what they have concocted. They have devised this method, a very subtle and serpentine method of distracting us and deflecting us from focusing on the cross of Christ and the true meaning of why he died in our place. But not only do they do that, but we also do that. We also do that whenever we have an empty profession of faith. When we have an empty profession of faith, that is, we claim to belong to Christ when actually our deeds contradict it, and eventually, also, we might fall away. We might completely apostatize, fall away, turn away, and walk away from the faith. And why do I say that? Why is it that even we are guilty of doing something similar to what Catholics do whenever we detract and take our focus off the true meaning of the death of Christ? The proof, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, 6 verse 4. Hebrews 6 verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. There it is. Because if we were to renounce or walk away from the faith, we would again crucify to ourselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. He's been crucified once. We should not, by denying him, crucify him again. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 26. Chapter 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much Severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Once we receive the knowledge of the truth, he says, if we go on sinning willfully in contradiction to that truth, there is only judgment that awaits. And why? Verse 29 says why. There should be a severe punishment than the physical death penalty of the law of Moses. He says, the severe punishment is deserving of the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. 
Because when we walk away from the faith, when we practice apostasy, what are we doing? We're trampling on the Son of God, and we regard as His blood, it is unclean blood. It's worthless blood. It's not for us. Yeah, it could be for you, but it's not for me. And they walk away. When they do that, they are bringing shame to the true meaning and purpose of the death of Christ. So in this way, too, we can learn that we need to have faith in Christ and Christ alone, his blood, and not walk away from that. Thirdly, in reference to the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, remember I mentioned earlier that the people of Israel, they all conducted this ritual because they went out 600,000 men on foot aside from women and children. Remember that from Exodus 12? There were that many people, which would have been millions of people. Millions of people conducted this ritual on the night of the first Passover. Millions of them. But we also know from Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 that God was not pleased with them. They were people of unbelief. They had an evil, unbelieving heart. God's wrath was against them because they were disobedient and they perished in the wilderness. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 clearly explains that those people who conducted the rituals of the Passover, really, they did not have faith. They were unbelievers. Which teaches us that we can conduct religious activities and yet not have true faith. Many people conduct religious rituals and do not have true faith. Many people become baptized They do things in in church, that is, they pray. They do all kinds of things religiously, and yet they don't have true faith. This is a warning to us. And this should teach us that we should not be the same way. For example, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1 and verse 10. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now he's addressing Israel and Judah. He's addressing the, the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's calling them Sodom, a different, a foreign city. He's calling them that. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Their incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yet even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Does he not, Isaiah, the holy prophet of God, does he not teach the people that it is worthless and useless to bring sacrifices, to bring offerings, to bring incense, and even to pray when they have unrepentant sin in their life. When they refuse to obey God 
It is worthless and useless and even detestable to God. He says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. He hates it. God hates this kind of hypocrisy. We cannot have faithfulness to rituals, but unfaithfulness to daily obedience. We cannot just say, I'm going to do my duty for one hour on Sunday morning. We cannot say that. We have to live the life that wants to do the revealed will of God, the good, wise, supreme, precious will of God, day by day, moment by moment. This is what the people did not understand. They put their confidence in a ritual, and then they thought they were okay with God and that God should accept them. But no, Isaiah, if we continue in verses 16 and 17, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Examples of how righteous people live. This is what needs to happen. And this is also what Moses was teaching the people. Moses not only taught them to conduct the ritual, but to live up to what they say. Live up to the the words of the ritual. Live up to everything that the rituals symbolize. Live up to it. Don't just do it, but live up to it. Have faith in those things which are unseen. And also, we are expected to do so in the New Testament. We are indeed expected to do so in the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. The disciples, they go and preach in another city, in the city of Samaria, and they make many converts in that place. Among the converts of that place was a certain Simon. Simon. uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Acts 8, verse 9. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and we'll see this is a false belief, and after being baptized... He continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall 
of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. He's a slave to sin. The bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What did Simon do? Simon, he believed in some way, right? And he got baptized. And then he showed his true colors by trying to get the power of the Holy Spirit by paying money to the apostles, as though God's going to be pleased with his money. God is not going to be pleased with his money. He did not have the right attitude, the right, the right faith. He had the wrong faith, a bogus belief in these things. And even though he conducted the ritual of baptism for himself, it was worthless in his case. Because Peter says that he was still in the bondage of iniquity. The bondage of iniquity. This can also happen to us. This is why we read earlier in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus said, and many will say to me on that day, uh, not everyone who, who uh, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name... Uh, cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles which in and of themselves they are good things but did they really believe no and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness therefore back to hebrews eleven twenty eight, when he teaches us about the faith of moses he's also reminding us that moses did have this true faith and he conducted the passover rituals in faith, believing in Christ, genuinely believing in Christ. But the rest of the people, he did not mention them. He only mentioned Moses because that's a guaranteed, certain, assured man of faith, but not the rest of the people because most of the rest of the people did not have that kind of faith. They did not. Further, we read in 1128... Hebrews eleven twenty eight. it says, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. He who destroyed the firstborn. Now, it says that there was someone who destroyed the firstborn. He does not explicitly mention who that someone is. Now, we do know that that someone had to be ultimately God. It had to be God because he took pains in several instances in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus to tell us that he is the one doing this. He is the one destroying them. For example, Exodus 12, 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord and the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So there on the one hand, this destroyer is God himself. He is the one who will inflict this punishment. But on the other hand, God did use agents or instruments, means to destroy. Um, Exodus 12, 23. Exodus 12, 23. 
For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to destroy your houses to smite you. In this verse, it also reiterates the fact that the Lord is the one doing this. However, he is using the destroyer. He's using someone else, something else, in order to destroy the people, in order to afflict them. And I believe that this has to entail demons. And why? Because of Psalm 78, or I may say destroying angels. Psalm 78 and verse 49. Psalm 78, 49, in reference to the Passover and this destruction, it says, He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. A band of destroying angels. So he who destroyed them involved God, but also involved a band of destroying angels. This is what God sent out in order to accomplish his punishment on them. Now, when we read about this, it's very easy for us to say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he does this kind of thing, but not the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a destroying God. He's impatient, he's angry, he's wrathful, he's a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Yes, God does that in the Old Testament, but he does not do that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, he's always forgiving. He's always loving. He's always gracious. He never punishes. He never condemns. He never judges anybody. And because he's that way, that's the way we need to be. And therefore, we should never say anything to hurt anyone's feelings, never harm anyone's feelings, never say anything that might sound judgmental. Don't ever condemn anybody. We must never talk that way. We must never reprove anybody, rebuke anybody, correct anybody, confront anybody. We should never, never do that. Because they imagine a false god of the New Testament, and then they say, that legitimizes the way they behave towards people. Now, people say that about the God of the New Testament and the way they should behave, that they should never judge, but they do often judge. And do you know who they judge? They judge the people who contradict them. They do that all the time. They're very impatient, unkind, unloving, ungracious, and very ruthless towards people who will not concede to their relativistic, pluralistic, universalistic worldview. But now let's look at the Bible. Does the New Testament actually describe God that way? Doesn't God also punish people? Doesn't he also destroy people who are unrepentant? Does he not do so? Yes. Jesus taught us this. Jesus taught us this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he taught us that we need to fear God. 10.28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He taught us to fear God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
People can only destroy our bodies, not our souls, but God is able forever in hell to destroy both soul and body. Matthew 11, another example from the lips of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He confronts these, reproaches these cities because they saw his miracles and they refused to repent. And he says, on the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, who did not have this experience of Christ's miracles. It's going to be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. He's teaching that his father is a God of judgment. Christ our Lord is teaching that from his very lips. Furthermore, we have the example of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Speaking of destroying angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When our Lord returns, what will he do? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, he is commending the Thessalonians for staying strong in the midst of sufferings and persecutions. He commends them for that. And then verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus uh, shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Here, our consolation is that God will judge our persecutors when Christ returns. When he returns, he's not returning alone, but he has mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 7 dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is the God of the New Testament and even the Jesus of the New Testament. He has hosts of angels, destroying angels, mighty angels in flaming fire. And he can at will summon them collect them in order to execute his will upon the earth and even against people, yes, people who refuse to repent, who don't know God and who will not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. When he reminds us in Hebrews eleven twenty eight that God destroyed 
those who refused to sprinkle the blood because they refused to put their faith in Christ. He reminds us that we ought not to be the same way. We ought to be those who have faith in Christ, who observe the things that God requires of us for the purpose of our salvation, for our good, and for the glory of God. Let's have the correct view of God. Let us have the correct view of the gospel. Let's believe in the true Lord Jesus Christ. Let us have true faith. Let us have true obedience. Let us love Him, fear Him, and glorify Him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.